John chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered and said to them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the son of The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raised the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We'll stop right there. You may have already picked up on some of these, but Jesus is making some pretty amazing claims about himself. And he's going to continue for the rest of this text. This is pretty much Jesus' first sermon, essentially, that we have recorded in the book of John. And as I was reading this, I kept just marveling at the crazy things that are coming out of Jesus' mouth. Like, imagine listening to what Jesus is saying in this context and just sitting there going like, wait, what? Like, I cannot believe you're saying this, the gall of this person. And it made me think of C.S. Lewis. And I don't know if you've heard this before, but um, I'm going to read a quote. And this is very popular. It's in uh, Mere Christianity, the book that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, And it's often referred to as the lunatic liar or Lord quote. But I want to read this to you because I think it's very much a part of what we're going to be talking about today. C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit um, at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about, this, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What he's saying there is that Jesus is making claims that there's no way we can just accept him for anything less than what he claims to be. He's either completely crazy, crazy nuts, or he is this malicious, evil liar, but he cannot just be just a guy that did cool things and said awesome things. He is going to make some stuff, he's going to make some claims about himself that we have to absolutely address. 
And so with that, let's jump into it. We read verse 17 and 18 where he talks about his father working and now I'm also working. And the Jews picked up very specifically on what Jesus was saying. Jesus was making a claim that he was equal with the father. So when the Jews got mad and wanted to kill him, it wasn't because they misunderstood what Jesus was saying. It was because they understood very clearly what Jesus was saying. Now, to set the context, the Jewish religion, as well as with Christian religion, is a monotheistic religion. Well, monotheism basically means is we believe there's only one God. There's not many gods. Now, there might be people that, things that claim to be God, but like a true deity, creator of the world, there is one. And so for a Jewish person hearing what Jesus said, they were hearing that either he was claiming to be another God or that he was claiming to be God himself. And in their theology, that was unacceptable. I mean, if you just kind of try and put yourself in their shoes, it makes sense. Like if somebody came in here today and was like, I'm God, we'd be like, yeah, that guy's nuts. Okay? So like we also wouldn't be like, okay, let me hear you out. Like we'd probably be like, you're wacko, right? Now, one thing we have to always keep in mind when we're talking about God is that God defines himself as holy, okay? Now, often, the word holy has been interpreted and, and I think understood by many as being very, very pure, which that can be a way to describe holy. But often when God describes himself as holy, holy is far more than just pure. Holy is completely different, like complete not nothing like anything we know like it also could mean completely separate like this idea of something separated different completely pure untarnished pretty much the opposite of us right like nothing like us holy and the reason why we want to touch on this is so often god is reduced to a better version of us right we apply human attributes to god we go this is how i am this is how humans are. God must be better than that. God is better than that. He's a more perfect version of that. And so we apply these human characteristics to God. And he ends up being just better than us, greater than us. But God is nothing like us. In fact, God has described himself multiple times. Hosea 11.9 is a verse um, in Psalms 50.21 in Hosea 11.9, he says, I am God, not a man. In another text, in the uh, Psalms one, he says, you thought I was like you. Like he's talking to humans, like you thought I was like you, like I'm nothing like you. Like God is so different. That's important because that's why Jesus had to come. Revealing the Father to human beings was necessary for us to know God and be with God because God is so different, so holy, so powerful, so pure, for God to be with us apart from Jesus would destroy us, would wipe us out. Often, it was in Texas saying that if humans were to be in God's presence, they would, they would die. They would, they would be consumed by his goodness, by his holiness. And so, for Jesus making himself the same as God, um, it would... It was so outside of anything that they were um, understanding. So as these religious leaders are understanding this, this is why they lost their minds and wanted to kill him. Because here was this person claiming to not, be, not only be like God, but he was working with God, he was seeing God, and he was interacting with God. 
And so it leads Jesus to then explain to these guys in verse 19 what he's meaning here. And he starts off with saying that the Father and I are the same substance. Right? He goes on, he says that we're, we see each other. We're on the same plane. We're working together. I watch him and he shows me what he's doing. He's, there's this interaction that's taking place. That the same substance, that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are the same substance, although they're three different persons. And he's trying to expand their understanding of this because he's saying, listen, it's not that we're the same exact person. That term is called modalism, and it's been taught throughout church history uh, or the world history, not the church, that, that the, same, the same person transforms. And he comes down, he's Jesus, and then he goes back to heaven, he's the Father, and then he's the Holy Spirit. No, three separate persons. And Jesus is explaining that by saying, hey, we have this interaction where I watch the Father, so I'm over here, and I watch him, and he shows me what he's doing, and then I do that. And the Father then takes what he has, and he gives it to me, and I do this, right? So there's, see, there's a separation, but there's the same substance. Now, they fully have full equal power, full equality, but what's beautiful about this interaction is that there's a freedom from rivalry, and there's a full independence. And what we see is that there's mutual submission. The reason why he's talking about it in such this way is because at the end of the day, I think that one of the most uh, important attributes about God is that God is a relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit interacting from all of eternity in a fully loving, fully giving pure relationship. That is why God refers to himself and he's referred to as love. Love in isolation is not love. It has to take place in relationship. And if we go all the way back to the beginning, we see that when God made human beings in his image, he was opening up that relationship so that we could interact and participate in this divine relationship that God has experienced for all of time, and he's inviting humans into that love to share himself with us as he's been sharing for all of eternity. And so this idea of this relationship, they are, God, God, Father, Son, Spirit are all same substance, but they're different in regards to the personhood, but they also have the same purpose, right? Jesus is saying, that I see the Father, for whoever does, um, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he's doing. And greater works than these will he show, so that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead. And he goes on, the Father judges, so that we all may have the same honor. Truly I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. The purpose, they all have the same purpose, right? Same substance, same purpose. And that is that the world might be redeemed. So there's a difference in regards to how they're interacting with humanity, but they all have the same purpose. God has the same purpose. I know it's kind of confusing, but it's important because Jesus is trying, he's explaining this to the Jewish leaders, not to confuse them, but he wants them to know him. Okay? Like often, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are always, they are the antagonists. They are the enemy, essentially, of what God's doing. But Jesus is constantly reaching out to them and wanting them to understand him in a different way and to know him. So we also see that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had the same power, right? Jesus came and it says that the Father gave him the power of life. 
to be able to raise who he wants, to be able to give life to who he wants. But not only that, he gave him the power of judgment. To judge means to have all the information, to have all of the, to know the scenario, to know the situation, to have all of the evidence, to have everything, and be able to make a, a fair judgment for every single person in the same world. So Jesus is saying, I have the ability to give life to whoever I want, and I have been given the power to judge. Like, these are crazy claims. Like, if I stood up here and be like, listen, I have the power to give life to whoever I want, you'd be like, we're not coming back next week, this guy's nuts. And I would hope you would not come back if I ever said this. If I said I have the power to judge all humanity, I know their entire scenario. For a judge to not judge without all the information, without all the evidence, is a not fair judge. And Jesus is saying, I know every person, every situation, everything. I have been given that power by God. It's a crazy claim. Who would dare say that? And he says that not only do we have the same substance and the same power, but we have the same honor. It says in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Like, just think about that for a second. He's telling these people, listen, you've been honoring, you honor God, you honor God so much that you don't even put vowels in his name when you write about him. Okay? That's, that's the level of honor they had for God, that when they wrote his name, they wouldn't even put vowels in because they didn't want to write his name because it was so holy and so perfect. Like, that's the honor. And Jesus comes up and he says, listen, the honor that you have for him, you should have for me. And if you don't honor me that way, you're not honoring him. That's like, that is a claim right there. I'm explaining this because they wanted to kill Jesus, and from their perspective, they weren't nuts. Like, they weren't crazy to want to kill him. They just weren't hearing. They weren't listening. They weren't believing. Their eyes were not open. But like Jesus is saying, like, the honor that you have for the Father, you're sacrificing your life, being perfect, and doing all of this stuff so that the Messiah will come, and I'm here. But like, that honor you must give to me. And if you don't give me that honor, if you don't honor me like the Father, you're not honoring the Father. I mean, like, who says this stuff? He cannot be anything less than what he claims. So as they're listening and their jaws on their floor, their head is spinning, their rage is stirring inside, I'm sure that there may have been somebody in the crowd that was pondering, okay, how do I have this life? What do I need to do? Maybe they didn't. Whatever the case is, God put this in here to answer the question for us as well. And then Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly means listen up. Many times there's something in Scripture that said twice or three times, Right? So truly, truly, it's like, listen, listen. Kind of along the same lines, right? In heaven, the angels are saying about God, holy, holy, holy. Like, it's the Lord God Almighty, right? Like three times holy. So he, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has a everlasting life, has eternal life. This is a really beautiful verse. There's a couple things about it that I think just makes it even more beautiful. Is that we have an open invitation to anyone, right? Whoever hears this, 
whoever hears this, whoever he is able to hear this and believes, yeah, you have eternal life. Belief means to trust, right? It's to trust, it's to believe something is true, but not only that, but to trust, right? So you're trusting the Father. Believes him. I love that it's written this way, at least in the uh, English Standard Version. Not believes in him. I think so often that can be convoluted, but believes him. Like, do we believe him? I've said this before. I know a lot of people believe in God, but do you believe him? Because that's kind of what we're talking about, right? We might be like, I believe, I think so often believe is like, I know the person exists. I know God existed. I know God exists. But do you believe what he says? Do we believe? Do you trust him, right? That's what he's saying. So whoever hears his word and trusts him and believes in him has eternal life. And I love that word, has. Not will have, not maybe have, not hopefully one day maybe have, but has. Past tense, right now. Completed action. Has. Think about that. We're surrounded by a culture that communicates that you must go and run and strive and hopefully it's enough. Hopefully you're worthy enough. Hopefully you do enough. And yet we have Jesus giving a promise that whoever hears his word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Now, eternal life, I think, especially in Christian culture, can, has become very so common that I think it's lost its significance. Now, the reason why I say that is because the word eternal is, is something that is only attributed to God. I think that so often we look at eternal life as like because we're Western and, and, and because we exist in time, we see everything very linear, right? And so I think naturally we see eternal life as like beginning here and then just kind of going off into the infinite line. But eternal is, is outside of time. God is eternal, right? Eternal doesn't have a beginning or an end. Eternal is the space in which God exists. The Father resides, right? And God creates time and matter and space, and he puts this in that. But God still exists outside of time. And so for him to say, has eternal life, yes, for us, we have a starting point, and then yes, it continues on. But it's saying that we have this life that is outside of this world. We have a life that is with God. And although we exist in time and space, in this moment in time, there's coming a day where this life begins now, where I have this eternal life within me, where I'm, my spirit is connecting with God outside. But one day, when I am no longer on this earth, I will be with God, like, ex- relationally presently. That is something I think that is important because, yes, it begins right now, but it is with God, right? Not we're going to work one day and become maybe where God's at, but that we're with God, that God has succeeded in in the redemption of the world that has brought humanity to him. Even Jesus, when he said, I go to prepare a place that that you might be with me, right? Like God's heart is that we, we might be with him. And it starts now, that still is heart for us now, that we might be with him. Like day in and day out we can be with him and that we might be with him forever, unhindered by time, space, and matter. And so with the idea of the eternal, Jesus says that you have that now and you will not enter into judgment. 
but has passed from death to life. This is so beautiful because judgment is the thing that, we all, that I think a lot of people fear. That God is judging them every day, looking at them, you're not doing enough. You're not living up to this standard. You're not doing enough. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you, if you trust me, trust what the Father says, if you trust me, you're no longer under judgment. And the reason why he, said, he can say that is it's not that we're not guilty. It's not that we don't deserve judgment. But it's because Jesus was judged for our sin and our guilt so that we could be free. We're not entering the judgment, not because God is overlooking it. It's not because God is, is not just God. He is very just, but it's because he judged Jesus. And he says, you have passed from death to life. There's this transformation that takes place. And he's able to say that because, not that we don't deserve death, but it's because Jesus passed from life to death so that we can pass from death to life. Jesus took our death so that we could be alive with him. And he's saying, do you believe that? It's this idea of hearing and trusting. And that is the all of the Christian life, is the more we just trust and know Jesus a little bit more every single day. And then he keeps going. And Jesus says a couple of things as he closes out this text real quick. He says, Truly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those that will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out and those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he kind of drives it home with the, the religious leaders as he goes on and says, listen, I am the Son of God. The hour is coming, and now is. Listen, you guys are dead right now. He's talking to them, right? You're going to hear these words, and you, have, you can have life. I have the power of life and judgment. But then he says, I am also the Son of Man. Now this is, for us, it may not be significant, but for a Jewish person hearing this idea of the Son of Man, most of them would have flashed back to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read it's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, real quick. Is Daniel talking. He says, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. And Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man. Like, these dudes were probably infuriated right now. The ones that were, like, not wanting. Jesus just made a claim that he is the one that came to the Ancient of Days, that all kingdoms and dominions were given to an everlasting kingdom. He's like, I am the Son of Man as well. And then he goes on and he basically says, listen, and I'm the one that's going to talk, and they're going to come out of the tombs at the resurrection. All the Jewish people believed in the resurrection. They were waiting it. Well, the Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't. That's why they were sad. So they were waiting you're waiting on that one, I know. They were waiting for the resurrection when the Messiah would come and call people out of the tombs and Jesus saying, I am the son of man that is gonna do that. 
make no mistake, Jesus was very explicit in who he claimed to be. He said it in a way to people that could hear at that time, and we sometimes have to unpack a little bit more of what's being said for us to, to understand. But he was being very explicit on who he was. And then he goes in, and this section we're going to have to race through, but it is a pretty quick section, where he goes, listen, don't take my word for it. There's things that are witnessing to what I'm telling you is true. He is wanting these people that hate him and want to kill him to know the truth. I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about this, is he's not just like hiding from them. He's like, listen, let me make it really clear. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I was in verse 30 of chapter 5. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Right? Makes sense. I could t- say whatever I want about myself, and just because I say it doesn't make it true. Right? And in a court of a law, it wouldn't, wouldn't hold up either. So Jesus is like, listen, don't believe me. I get it. He says, um, but there's another whom bear witnesses of me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is born witness of the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive um, is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He, speaking of John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so he says, listen, you have John the Baptist. He came, and he bears witness of who I am. But then he goes on. He says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, in verse uh, 36, these very works that I'm doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And so he said, listen, what about the miracles? What about all the things that I've done? What about these things that are unexplained? Like these bear witness to me, right? And then he goes on again. Verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me, Himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He goes, what about the Father? He's like, the scriptures are very clear about me. The scriptures are clear. It, you, he's told you all of these things, and you do not have his word abiding. You don't have his love in you. Like, he's ta- Jesus, listen, Jesus talked a little trash, man. Like, he... he he, I get it, he's as meek and mild, like we see the pictures, and he just has the lamb, but like Jesus threw down a little bit. It's like, listen, you don't have the love of the Father in you. You don't have him abiding in you. Like, you don't receive him, you don't receive me. Like, he's, he's trying to, like, make his point. And then he goes on to this, and this is one of my favorite passages in this whole book. He goes, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for you wrote of me. But if you do not believe the writing, his writings, then how will you believe my words? He's like, you refuse to come to me. You search the scriptures for them. You think you have life. You do not have the love of God within you. You do not seek the glory that comes from God. You do not believe Moses in whom you set your hope. He's the one that accuses you. You search the scriptures for in them you think they have life. I don't know of a more true statement of 
I think religious culture, both in the Christian church and without, than that. So often, the Bible has been reduced to a, a, a bunch of things that you should do to live better. I came from a culture, and I've talked about it many times, that believed that, that the key to everything was just to read this more. If you're struggling, read this more. And I'm not in any way not saying you shouldn't read your Bible. But what we do is we would, we would search the Scriptures because in that we feel that we have life. We search the Scriptures for life. But what's so often left out is that these testify of Jesus. And I would refuse sometimes to come to him that I might have life. It was easier to give somebody a scripture to read. Oh, you're struggling with your marriage? Let me just read Ephesians chapter 4. It says, husbands love your wives. Christ loves the church. Yeah, that's why I'm struggling because I don't know that part. What husband's like, wait, I'm supposed to love her? What are you talking about? Yeah, the problem isn't knowledge, right? We've reduced Christianity so often to knowledge. Like if I just know more, if I just know more of my Bible, listen, this is the most important book in the world. It is inspired by God. It's God's letter to us, but it is his letter about himself in the person and work of Jesus. And so often we can fall under the same trap that if I just read more, know more, then I'll be better and live better. This is not an instruction manual for living. This is a letter, this is a book written by many different men over many years, different letters, that is talking about Jesus, talking about the hope of the world that's coming. It's a story of God redeeming the world, coming on a rescue mission to save us. And it's filled with human beings failing repeatedly, but God being faithful. Beginning of last year, we started a God, a God story series where we went over that. So if you want to know more about that, it's on our podcast. But it is very important that we see it this way because these testify of Jesus. And one of the things that I think is so important as we understand this is that if we reduce this to just things to do, ways to change our behavior, if all we do is reduce it to that, then what will happen is every time we read, we're looking for who? We're looking for us. We're looking for us in the story. When we're reading about David, we're going, how do I be like David? Where am I living up to David's standard? Where am I not living up to David's standard? When we read about Samson, that kind of gets real hard. Okay, well, how do I be like Samson here? Like, right? What happens also is, it, is we don't know what to do with brokenness. We read about somebody that's a complete mess and we're like, but this guy is like a hero. So how do we deal with that. Like, rather than understanding that every story is either pointing explicitly to the Savior of the world, or it's stirring up within us a longing for the Savior of the world. Where we see David has failed, and we go, like, that can't be the end of the story. There has to be a better king. We read about Samson and go, man, there has to be a better strong man. There has to be a better hero. I think there's not a person alive at the moment, I think, that's done a better job explaining this than Tim Keller. And so I'm just going to read this quote because I think it really encapsulates what I'm trying to say. Tim Keller says this as he's talking about Jesus being a true and better. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam, 
who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people to God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, Now we can look to God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is a true matter Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and used his new power to save them. Jesus is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. He's a true and better David, whose victory became his people's victory. Now they never lifted, without ever lifting a stone to accomplish himself. He's a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, the innocent, the perfect, the helpless, the slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. It all is pointing us to Jesus or stirring our longing for him. And when we read the scripture in that way, it comes alive. And what happens is we start looking for Jesus. We start looking for God working. We start seeing him as the hero. And the most amazing thing happens. Our eyes get off ourselves. Our eyes get off ourselves. We're not so introspective looking at all the nuances of our failure and all these things. Our eyes start off ourselves and go on to Jesus and we start seeing him now, not just working in scripture, but now we're looking for him in day-to-day life. We're looking for him in our neighbor. We're looking for him in the person sitting next to us. How is God working? We start looking for him, and it frees you. It frees you. That love that he gives forms us. And what happens is we want to respond to that love by loving him in return. And so behavior and and life changes happens. But it is in response to what God has done first. It is in response to seeing his beauty and his goodness and his glory. And it has a profound effect on us. And so as we're left with this, we visit back our our three points of what C.S. Lewis said. Jesus could have been crazy. He could have been a lunatic. He could have been wild and just off his rocker. But... I mean, he claimed to be, that he could raise the dead, and he claimed to, to have life, and he claimed to do all these things. But Jesus performed these verifiable miracles throughout history. His resurrection is one of the most documented historical events ever. They changed the calendar around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
That's why it's 2022 right now. Like, who in the history of the world has ever had that kind of impact where they're like, let's just change time, how we see time. Like, that's literally what happened, right? Like, everything before this was before Jesus, and it's, it's that, and now everything is Jesus, right? Like, that's the impact. He could be a liar and this malicious person trying to secure power and all of this stuff. But one thing that's crazy about somebody pursuing power is Jesus did a pretty poor job of taking advantage of it when he did. Every opportunity he had for control and for power, he rejected. Every opportunity he had to be a bigger influence, he rejected. I mean, when he started off in Capernaum, his disciples come to him like, listen, there's a lot of people that are going. Let's, people are everywhere. They're all looking for you. Let, let's start it. Let's grow the church, man. Let's get big. Let's go. Jesus like, we're leaving. Like, what are you talking about? We're leaving. This is the moment. There's momentum and, and t- let's go. He was terrible at it if he was lying to gain power. Not only that, his disciples and their families, because he saw the miracles, he saw the resurrection, his disciples and their families all suffered and most every one of them died. Not because Jesus was real. They died because of the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the very thing. All they had to say is, yeah, he didn't rise. But they went to the grave. They suffered brutal deaths. Their families, listen, any parent in this room, we might die for something crazy, but we're not gonna let our kids die for something crazy. Like, why would we let our kids suffer for anything we knew wasn't true? And that is the this testimony. And so it leaves us with the final conclusion that Jesus must be everything he claimed. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't a liar. He's Lord. And the only response to that is bowing our knee to him. Our only response to him is trusting him because he's good and he's faithful. He is the Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God-man that came to save the world. He is the Savior, the friend of sinners, and he's inviting all of us in to that loving relationship that he opened up at the beginning of time. And for those in this room that may not know Jesus, I invite you to come to him that you might have life. And for those of us that do follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to keep doing that. The way forward is to keep coming to Jesus, keep trusting what he says, and keep receiving from him life until the day that we see him with our own eyes face to face. Let's pray.